0: Welcome back to the London Futurist podcast. Advanced AI is currently pretty much a duopoly between the US and China. The US is the clear leader, thanks largely to its tech giants, Google, Meta, Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple. China also has a fistful of tech giants. Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent are the ones usually listed. But the Chinese government has also taken a strong interest in AI since DeepMind's AlphaGo system beat the world's best Go player in 2016. People in the West don't know enough about China's current and future role in AI. Some think its companies just copy their Western counterparts, while others think it is an implacable and increasingly dangerous enemy run by a vicious dictator who cares nothing for his people. Both those views are wrong. One person who's been trying to provide a more accurate picture of China and AI in recent years is Jeff Ding, the author of the influential newsletter China AI. Jeff grew up in Iowa City and is now an assistant professor of political science at George Washington University. He earned a PhD at Oxford University, where he was a Rhodes Scholar, and wrote his thesis on how past technological revolutions influenced the rise and fall of great powers, with implications for US-China competition. After gaining his doctorate, he worked at Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute and Stanford's Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Jeff, welcome to the London Futurist Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to see you here. So, Jeff, perhaps a good place
0: to start would be with the Thucydides Trap. Would you like to explain what that is and why it's relevant?
2: The Thucydides Trap is a reference to this theory in international relations that when a rising power challenges an established power in terms of its growing resources and capabilities, the likelihood of conflict between those two states is relatively high. It's been applied to the US-China context, just given China's remarkable rise over the past few decades, and obviously the increasing geopolitical tensions between the two countries.
0: And the historian Thucydides, the Greek historian who is named after thought that it was almost inevitable that a rising power would lead to a war between the established power and the rising one. Obviously, we all hope he's wrong about that. And in fact, America has faced a number of rising powers and hasn't gone to war with them, so they've got some good form. Let's hope that they continue that. How far behind the US is China's AI industry today? Is that even a meaningful question? It
2: really depends on how you measure China's AI capabilities. The AI industry itself is a really murky and malleable concept. A lot of firms that do AI are counted in the software industry, or they would be counted in manufacturing industries, but they're applying AI to do things like machine quality inspection of defects on the production line. And that's counted in the manufacturing industry, but it's an AI application. So it's almost trying to measure something like electricity, which is a general purpose technology that's going to permeate across the entire economy. The way I look at it is if you're trying to measure and assess China versus the U.S.'s AI industry, one way to understand it is think about the overall rate of adoption of AI across all industries. And right now, that's relatively low for both sides just because... Deep learning is a relatively new field. It's hard for companies to have the resources to train their own models. There's talent shortages in terms of AI engineers to apply things at scale. But I think based on metrics that compare U.S. and China on cloud computing adoption or just adoption of simple things like computers, these things that are connected to enabling and general purpose technologies, the U.S. is pretty far ahead on those counts. So I would expect the U.S. to have a pretty clear lead over
1: China in terms of the overall AI industry. Some people want to look ahead and they want to find leading indicators. And I've heard it suggested that you should look at some of the leading AI conferences. One of them is NeurIPS. And I've heard that the... Largest number of submitted papers to that conference is now from China, although the number of acceptances is still perhaps highest from America. But that trend is changing. Is that a fair metric that you look at? I think that's one useful metric
2: to judge leading-edge innovations or fundamental theories. Europe's is recognized as the top conference in the AI field. I haven't looked at the most recent up-to-date numbers, but I think numbers from a few years ago, David, show that your statistic is right in terms of accepted papers. I think U.S.-based affiliations dominated the accepted papers at Europe's. I think that of the top 25 institutional affiliations, only one was Chinese, Tsinghua University, which is regarded as the leading university in computer science in China.
0: Yeah, I've been doing some consulting work for a client recently and had to think quite hard about metrics for level of AI ability by country. Interestingly, there are a few people publishing quite useful metrics. There's a media organization called Tortoise, which has an AI index. And also the OECD has some pretty useful statistics. And you're right. In fact, David, you're right. The number of papers published by China is now higher, but the number of papers accepted Is higher in America, and also the number of citations, which is probably the most important measure of papers. One of the other metrics is the number of patents applied for and granted in AI. And another one, which is harder to get at, is the number of data scientists and AI experts active in a country. And that's a whole range of different disciplines, but you can draw up a list of them, and you can get some idea of how many there are by country by looking at LinkedIn and by looking at GitHub. As I understand it, by all those measures, the US is quite a long way ahead of anybody. China is definitely in second place. And then there's a really big gap between China and the US and third place, which might be the UK, it might be Israel, it might be Germany, probably different days they shuffle around a bit. But it's quite interesting how there is this effective duopoly. And the missing player, obviously, is the EU, both individually and collectively. The EU is just not playing. It does a good job of offering regulations for the world to follow, but is not actually involved terribly much in the creation of advanced AI. But what do you think are the biggest misconceptions that Westerners have about China and AI?
2: I think one of the biggest is that Westerners overstate China's AI capabilities. And it goes to a lot of those metrics that you just cited. When you look at human capital, when you look at the quality, not just the quantity of patents and publications, we get a more granular and I think more realistic picture of China's capabilities in this space. I'll just add one note, oftentimes when we think the EU is not a player, our focus is on who's creating the newest AI inventions and breakthroughs. And certainly the biggest players in that sense are in the US and China, and the list of companies you mentioned at the introduction. If we look at, for general purpose technologies, who adopts these innovations at scale, I think the jury's still out on that, and that Europe could still be an important player. All the metrics we just cited and went through, those are raw counts, overall numbers. If you're talking about diffusion and the ability for a country to adopt all these things at scale, you have to normalize that by population. You want a dense number of engineers. Singapore might have less engineers than the US, but if they have a higher density, they might be better equipped at adopting AI at scale, adopting cloud computing at scale. So those are just a few of the things in terms of overstating China's AI capabilities and maybe preoccupation with innovation and the initial moment of invention rather than adoption at scale, continued maintenance of these systems.
1: Two other things that I often hear mentioned or the amount of data which is easily accessible in China, with apparently less concern for violations of privacy and sharing. And then there's the perceived leadership focus on the subject. It seems that there are statements from Chinese leadership that emphasising more consistently, more clearly, the importance of investing in AI for leadership positions and with funding allocated not just at the national level, but at every regional level as well. And there's a fear by some that Western politicians have only an occasional interest in these subjects. As it happens, the Chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK, Geoffrey Hunt, is speaking, and the morning we're recording this, to a group of leading technologists in the UK, and he has said, let's have more investment, please, in these fields. But it seems to be more of a flash in the pan as opposed to something sustained.
2: Yeah, I think those are two important features of China's AI ecosystem to highlight. The first being access to large quantities of data. That's been an important driver of China's success in facial recognition, having access to surveillance camera footage from different public security bureaus at the provincial and the national level. I will note that I think there has been some momentum in China growing towards more personal information protection. It's not that Chinese people don't care about privacy. Actually, I've translated surveys that show the vast majority of Chinese citizens would want a way to delete their facial data and that there's a lot of concern about the abuses of facial recognition. So I think that's an important point to bring up on that first feature. On the second feature, David, that you were talking about, the Chinese government's sustained support for this technology, I think that has been borne out in terms of not just the July 2017 National AI Plan, but also a series of local plans and local efforts to build computing capacity. All those play a major role. The thing I would bring up as one potential response, but also as something else to consider is that... We oftentimes assume that government industrial policy is good in these emerging technology areas, but actually a lot of innovation scholars say the reason for U.S. success in a lot of these emerging technologies is because they have a more decentralized innovation system. It's not the government picking winners and funneling a bunch of money into a particular research area. It's allowing these bottom-up, laboratory-of-democracy-type efforts to bubble up from the state level, from the local level, allow for more experimentation. And that decentralized innovation system is more successful
0: in the long run. Yeah. It's a mixed economy in America, and that's clearly very helpful. My favorite story about how Silicon Valley got started is it was actually a response to the sinking of the Titanic. Because if the Titanic had had ship-to-shore radio, it could have been saved. And so the US government said, right, all large ships coming to America from henceforth must have ship-to-shore radio. And the place where radios were made was, guess what, Silicon Valley. And so they pumped some money in to little companies to make them able to make that provision. And then, of course, later on, DARPA was really important. We probably wouldn't have the internet if it wasn't for DARPA's occasionally crazy investment activities. So it's helpful to have some government pump priming as well as the absolute fundamental importance of venture capital and other sources of private funding. The point you made earlier about There is still time for EU companies to play a major role in AI. It's absolutely true. We're only really at the beginning of our AI journey. And because we're on an exponential growth curve, we'll always be at the beginning until it flattens out and becomes an S-curve if it ever does. So there's plenty of time. So if anybody from the EU is influential, is listening, let's pick up the pace a little.
1: Do you agree, Jeff, with the thesis of people like Mariano Mazzucato? She's the eminent economist who claims that the state should be doing more industrial, strategic backing of possible winners. She asks the question, who created the iPhone? And she says, everybody says it's Steve Jobs, but it was the US government. Not that they actually put it all together, but their funding of things, as Callum was talking about, Silicon Valley. They invested in the basis for GPS. They invested in the basis for touchscreens. They invested in many other standards. And yes, there were brilliant entrepreneurs that added their products on top of these standards. But without these investments, we would be much further behind. And so Mariano Mazzucato, amongst others, is saying, let's have more clued up industrial strategy rather than just leaving it for the market. Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of good evidence
2: for those claims. The point that I wanted to push on is it's not just about throwing a lot of funding at different technology areas. I think we saw that with Japan. Japan invested so much funding in different computing paradigms at the time.
0: In the fifth generation computers, yeah. Fifth generation, yep.
2: A lot of those debates, if you go back and look at those debates, they'll mention AI in those conversations. Japan's gonna lead the world in AI because of these government initiatives. The issue was they picked the wrong paradigm And governments, especially for emerging technologies where the trajectory is not clear, they lack a lot of information and technical expertise to understand where the technology is going. So you can lock in a pathway that's completely the wrong one. That's what I was emphasizing. I think there's a lot of things beyond funding that the government can do to help markets and to adjust against market failure. Helping private industry with standardization efforts, checking against anti-competitive behavior, there's a lot of other things beyond just throwing money at the problem that can make for good industrial policy. Yeah, Things like standard setting should be part of the industrial policy arsenal. Yeah, But we don't think of those as the first thing out of the toolbox.
0: A big problem with the Mazzucati thesis is that until, I don't know when, some point in the 20th century, governments were simply not involved in technology innovation. Princes, kings were a little bit, but essentially it was private individuals. And it was only, I would guess, after the First World War. Well, not long before that, the government started saying, we will fund the development of new technologies. You definitely need both, but you do need private companies who are willing to take absurd risks, and it doesn't actually matter if they fail. If governments take a big risk and they fail, it's a big problem because they can't let go. They can't have a thousand different experiments running at the same time, which venture capital firms necessarily can.
1: Perhaps we should pick up then the social credit system, because China is sometimes said to have an advantage in that they are actually deploying AI at scale. You said that how do you make progress? It's not just you have the theories, you actually deploy it at scale. And when you deploy to scale, you can learn, you can adjust, you can develop insights from the distributed market rather than just some bright professors in an ivory tower. So how is that Chinese experiment with social credit going? The social credit system is not just
2: one system where every citizen is assigned this all-encompassing score that judges their trustworthiness or their good behavior. Shazida Ahmed has published a lot on this subject. Jeremy Dom has published a lot on this subject, trying to debunk myths associated with the social credit system. I think one way to understand it is there's a level of the social credit system that's very much almost like a financial credit score. There's another level that's more targeted blacklist systems that are managed in different local governments. So for example, if you're a teacher and you treat a kid badly at school, you might be added to this blacklist, but it doesn't affect some national score that's aggregated across the entire country. It's just a local level blacklist that they include under the banner of the social credit system. In terms of the AI at scale point, I'm not sure actually to what extent AI is even playing a role in the social credit system. It seems to me more very low-tech, almost manual-type blacklists, rather than using some algorithm to calculate a citizen's reliability or predict a citizen's political reliability or trustworthiness.
0: Has the social credit system changed from its original conception, or was its original conception misunderstood in the West? Because when it was first talked about in, I think, probably about 2016, 2017, The idea was that it would have been much more than just an Experian credit rating system. It really would nudge people away from bad behaviours and into good behaviours. And if you did well, you would be able to get better access to mortgage. You'd be able to get travel visas more easily. You'd be able to get good jobs. And if you scored badly on the system, you might find yourself unable to get on a train, certainly unable to get on a plane. Was that stuff always just mythical or do you think it changed as it evolved?
2: I think initially there was the outline in 2014 of this system, and it mentioned a lot of things that you just listed. A lot of those punishments, like not being able to travel, those are included in some of the blacklist systems that I just mentioned as ways to nudge people towards different behaviors. What researchers have looked at, people who have tried to understand on the ground how these social credit systems are being rolled out, I think the main finding has been that what was proposed in theory as this very unified national system has not been easy to be put into place and implemented on these very local
0: levels. So it's kind of evolved into being less ambitious because it's turned out to be harder to produce the original all-encompassing vision.
2: The initial vision was quite broad and a lot of times the interpretation of the initial version by outside researchers, western media, said more about our own fears, rather than what was actually happening in China. Yeah. I think the initial vision was a pretty broad government outline. That's important to underscore.
0: We're talking about fears. In the time that you've been running your newsletter, you'll have obviously watched very closely the relations between the US and China getting worse. And this started with Trump. But Biden hasn't changed course from Trump. And we do seem to be heading towards something of a splinter net where there's a U.S. tech environment and a Chinese tech environment, and the U.S. is very keen for its best technology not to flow to China. What do you think about that? Does that make you nervous? Do you think the West is right to be fearful of China or wrong to be fearful? And do you think that the development of these two tech ecosystems is dangerous, or could it be okay?
2: This is a central question right now. There's a lot to unpack here. For me... My hot take is that if you look at the broader technological ecosystem, if you zoom out from just semiconductors, these two ecosystems are still very, very interdependent, and there's a case to be made that they'll only be more coupled in the future. Obviously, COVID has played a huge role in terms of limiting travel and exchange and forcing countries to reevaluate supply chains and access to certain critical materials. We don't know what the long-term effects of that will be, in addition to government actions by the U.S. and actions by China as well. I think there's a couple of different ways to look at it. The ecosystems are connected through a lot of different channels. One stage is co-authorship, university-to-university ties, collaborations on the academic level. I think those will remain pretty strong. Another aspect is strategic alliances between corporations. Google and Tencent enact some patent deal where Tencent is able to apply some Google techniques without violating Google's patents. Strategic alliances between Qualcomm and Lenovo in standard setting. All these deals that happen outside of the public eye, those will still remain strong, maybe even get stronger. By the way, we've seen that with China and Germany as well. Strategic alliances between Chinese and German corporations have only increased even with more EU scrutiny over Chinese investments in the EU. I think the areas where we'll see more tension and more decoupling type actions are in key technology areas where there's a lot of concern about dependency on foreign suppliers. So we've seen that with semiconductors some technologies that are more dual use and have stronger connections to the military. And I think another interesting channel by which the two ecosystems are connected that I'm a little bit more uncertain about are the financial ties. We've talked about venture capital. If you look at China's leading AI startups, so much of them have been supported by overseas venture capital, largely from the U.S., Alibaba is a Chinese company, but Yahoo has a major stake in it, and Alibaba raised a lot of money from foreign investors. China's leading chip maker SMIC, SMIC, is a Chinese company, but it was incubated by Silicon Valley Venture Capital and led by U.S. citizens in the beginning. So these two ecosystems are very connected. We've seen recent moves in the financial realm, where Chinese state funds have bought out certain stakes in certain companies, like SMIC, and those companies have delisted from U.S. stock exchanges and gone back to Chinese stock exchanges or Hong Kong stock exchanges. That'll be something important to watch in the future, because the financial globalization aspect of all this is often
1: understudied. Is that delisting part of a wider trend in which Chinese leadership is trying to de-risk their dependency on overseas influences? And is that also connected with the reports of the trimming of the wings of the high-flying stars of the Chinese AI ecosystem, the ones who apparently were out of public sight for a long time?
2: Yes, I do think Chinese policymakers are concerned about dependency on foreign exchanges, especially US exchanges. That's why there have been efforts by China to build up its own domestic exchanges, such as the star market, where a lot of Chinese AI startups have chosen to list. I'm not sure what the future will hold on this, especially because it does intersect with the Chinese government's efforts to contain and check its internet giants as you just mentioned. There's definitely a world where Chinese companies still continue to list on the U.S. stock exchange. It's still one of the best sources for capital to expand. We'll have to wait to see how it plays out.
0: It feels as if largely the ball is in the U.S. court. But there's a lot of talk recently that the Chinese government is relaxing its crackdown on its tech companies, partly perhaps because post-COVID they really need their help to Kickstart the economy, get it back to the kind of growth levels that they've been seeing previously and want to see. Do you think that's actually real? Do you think the tech companies can breathe a bit of a sigh of relief now?
2: Without speaking about specific companies, I think your question raises this broader tension for the Chinese government. They have a directive to sustain economic growth and meet performance legitimacy targets, and they also want control and technological autonomy. It's not one or the other. To sustain economic growth and to spur greater industrial output, you might have to rely on companies that have a lot of foreign investment and a lot of global interests. If you want to be more technologically independent and control your own domestic ecosystem and be more almost autarkic or some would say techno-nationalist, you might have to rely less on those sorts of companies or try to transform them to be more Chinese but then they might lose their vitality. Part of why they've been so successful is because they can live in both worlds and benefit from access to foreign resources.
1: So as we start winding up, maybe we can look a little bit more to the future. What would be a bad set of developments in the next few years from your point of view? Or conversely, what would be a good set of developments in terms of the scenarios we might reach?
2: For me, if I'm thinking about the U.S. national interest, or what would be good for the world. Going back to this initial question about the Thucydides trap, one of the most pressing things is to avoid conflict. And how do you manage technological competition without it escalating into broader economic conflict or military conflict? For me, one of the things that I've been trying to do with my work, and I've mentioned a few times on the pod today, is more grounded assessments of where China actually stands in terms of its science and technological capabilities. So I think overestimating China's rise in this area could lead to U.S. policymakers taking preventative action or more aggressive action against China that is not justified in terms of where the U.S. actually stands. And I think if we have a better sense that the U.S. actually does have an enduring lead in this space, it can lead to more pragmatic, and deliberative policymaking.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that's right. Surely the most important thing is to avoid a war between America and China. That would just be the worst possible outcome in geopolitics today. And when you might at any moment have a populist leader of America who would do some deeply irresponsible things, the further away you can get from outright hostility, the better. So under Biden, you'd hope that relationships would improve so that there's decent dialogue so that whatever comes next, it's not too vulnerable.
2: One other thing I'm interested in, how to prevent accidents and unauthorized use of powerful AI systems or powerful weapon systems in general. Even when the US and Soviet Union were at the height of competing in the Cold War, they still maintained transnational channels for their scientists to work together on questions of nuclear weapons, security and safety. So there are like joint verification experiments where scientists from both sides could build trust on managing some of these powerful systems. Look, even if the US and China, this competition we've been talking about really escalates to something more existential, we should still try to maintain those transnational ties between scientists and technical people working on these powerful systems that will allow those channels to remain open and hopefully to share insights on how to prevent accidents and unauthorized use of powerful AI systems or powerful weapon systems.
0: That's a a good note to end on. It's good to talk.
2: Yeah, good to talk. That's a good theme for today.
0: Jeff, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the London Futurist Podcast.
1: Appreciate you it's been a real pleasure surely as things go on there will be hiccups in the years ahead there will be shocks there will be surprises there will be antagonisms but the more the talking continues the more there's a chance to calm things down by back channels rather than let the tempers the frustrations run amok yeah definitely definitely and
2: thank you for having me on
1: For those listening to the podcast, if you liked this, please consider writing a short review and giving us a five-star rating so that others will be encouraged in turn to hear more of the episodes.